I literally was giving a presentation to a group of high schoolers and it was me getting certified as a presenter for this, for the rescue. And I got bit on the hand by a caiman. But it was like, okay, is this a freak out? I'm getting bit by a caiman. I can't get him off. Or is this a, this is a great example of bite force and how we can't get his mouth open. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to a very special Friday episode of From the Ground Up podcast. So I had to knock back the podcast a couple of days because my dog, Dixie, unfortunately is sick and I've been bringing her to the vet uh, pretty much every day until today. She actually didn't have to go anywhere. She's um, she's had a bunch of tests and all these things going on. They don't really know what's wrong with her, but she's having some type of uh, neurological issues. So I've been keeping a close eye on her and stuff like that. So um and I was also on a reptile podcast last night. So check out my podcast with uh, James and April, the Reptile Gumbo podcast. Uh, James actually somehow got that out pretty much last night, I think. And we recorded it last night. So I was, I was pretty impressed. So go check out that that episode. That was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, it includes porn stars dying at a toad venom ritual of some sort. I don't know. I don't know. It was fun. Um, but anyway... PortCityPet.com. You can check out a lot of cool isopods and pet supplies and uh, everything I have to offer. Uh, please go check it out. And I I look forward to having a green tree person on because honestly, I was just talking to, to Ian Bissell last night who was getting Rapashi to actually supplement his green trees. And I saw, and I had also heard from like Ryan Cox and I heard Justin talk about it, about um, supplementing Rapashi, which I thought was interesting. And we just started carrying Rapashi. So I was like, oh, that's that's convenient. So, um, so yeah, I look forward to seeing how everyone does with that because that's really interesting. Um, I know I th- believe David Brahms came up with that, but I'm sure uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. That's just kind of a taste of a little Chondra talk. But let's get to the podcast. Let's do this thing. So my guest today is like a OG listener and also just someone who reached out kind of trying to get their start in reptiles and she's really taken off in a lot of different ways. So uh, Dominique DeFalco of DeFalco Reptiles, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Of course. So so can we get started on how you first got interested in reptiles? Yeah. Um, so my mom told me not to tell this story, so I have to tell it. Um, Sorry, mom. When I was 10, so I'm 22 now, I'm still pretty young, still like don't have my shit together. Um, when I was 10, I, I really wanted a leopard gecko for Christmas. Like that's all I wanted in the world was a leopard gecko. So we got a leopard gecko from a big box store um, and it died like traumatically. Um, must have had some neurological thing going on, but it had a seizure in front of me while I was trying to feed it. And then it just withered away and died and it was absolutely devastating. And I was told I would never have a reptile again. Um, so obviously that didn't happen. <laughs> so um, got out of reptiles then. And then about 11 years later, right when I was around 20, I kind of found the reptile community and realized that people actually kept large quantities of reptiles. 
And I was living in Seattle at the time and wanted to come back and start volunteering at another animal rescue. And I found a reptile rescue local to me, got involved with them, started listening to podcasts, reaching out to people, um, reach out to you, listen to you a lot, watch your, uh, watch your YouTube channel. And I was telling Evan this with Condro Cartel that, that one of those episodes was the first time I ever learned that people kept green trees in captivity. I did not know that. I thought that was like exclusively a zoo thing. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and then it just kind of went from there. So, uh, yeah, it's like one of those, what is it about a green tree python that, I mean, makes it look like such a higher quality animal that would only be kept at a zoo? And I, I know, I feel like the same, it has that kind of appeal to it. I think it's like, it, I've seen it, it, like they look like dragons, which is true. And there's something about, and this is me totally being prideful. There's something about having an animal that people are like, oh, those are really hard to keep. Like, don't, don't buy those. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I want that. I want that for sure. <laughs> and um, so when I really got into reptiles, I just like begged my parents to let me have a pet snake at their house because I'm in college now. And at the time I was living with roommates who were like, yeah, no, you can't have any pets, no reptiles, nothing. And for my 21st birthday, I asked to go to Tinley, which is so lame, <laughs> but so worth it. So my very first Tinley was in 2019, no, 2018. So I've only been in the hobby for like a year and a half now. And I was texting you because I wanted to meet you. And you told me to meet up with Ian, Ian Bissell. And I wanted to talk to him about getting a green tree. And my parents were like, yeah, you're not getting a snake. We'll let you go see them, but you're not coming home with anything. And I was like, okay, I just, I just want to see everything. Just really excited, like a zoo. Um, and we were at lunch at Tinley and my mom's like, okay, you can get a snake. And I was like, hell yeah. Can I get a corn snake? <laughs> and that's what I wanted first. Cause I was like, that's easy. We're gonna start with a corn snake. I know a guy. Um, <laughs> And she's like, okay, but it's, if it's going to be in my house, I want to see what the setup's going to look like. And so I showed her like a Google picture of a corn snake habitat. And she's like, yeah, no, that's, that's ugly. I want something pretty. And she said, what about a ball python? And I was like, it's the same thing, but the substrate is brown. Like, that's about it. And I said, what about a green tree python? And that's like the end goal. Above all, be all. That's what I wanted. And I showed her a picture and she's like, yeah, we can work that out. And so I left lunch and I walked back into the show and I found Ian and I told him then, I was like, I'm going to buy a green tree python, but I need to talk to you about it. And that's, that was my first snake was my green tree python. And you knew at this point that that was completely ass backwards of how people usually get in the hobby, right? Because you initially yeah. wanted to get a corn snake. Yeah, absolutely. Because I... So I, I work with the reptile rescue. And so this is like in October of 2019. And I started with the rescue in May. So May 2019, I'd been working with the animals every week. I was doing cleaning. I managed our social media. Like it kind of falls to the wall, did it. And now I'm actually our intake coordinator. So all the animals that come into the rescue um, come through me. And which is like great if you want to acquire animals really quickly. <laughs> Filter out like, the cool stuff. Real yeah, quick. absolutely. I text my one from Matt and I'm like, hey, like this is what's coming in. And he's like, good to know. <laughs> um, 
And I'd been working with a lot of animals, lots of ball pythons, boas, berms, like everything, and lots of corn snakes. And the resounding, you know, statement is, oh, corn snake is a great first pet. They're really easy. There's not a lot you can screw up. And they're really easy to find uh, for a good captive bred animal. And so I was like, great, that's what I'll do. And I'll work up to a green tree one day. And then I was like, never mind. We're just going to start with the green trees and then get a ball python last. And that's what I did. <laughs> But you didn't just go and pick up a green tree and figure it out. I mean, you actually no. reached out for yeah. quite a while. I reached out to you probably like six months before I started talking to Ian. Um, and then I reached out to Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics as well. And he also recommended me to talk to Ian. And then I joined like every Facebook group and read every file. And I got all the Condro books and everything. Um, and then when I actually bought my first green tree from Ian, so in October, I sent like the first payment. And then I live in Ohio and winter here is horrendous. So I wasn't able to get my animal until January of 2019. So I had like another two months of just like buying every single thing I needed, reading everything. I think I bought like four different types of purchase thinking like, I don't know which one he's going to like better. They don't like anything. They just sit there. It's just a ball python on a stick. Um, but I just did as much research as I possibly could and asked 8,000 questions and messed up a lot at the beginning. There's a lot of things I did wrong because, you know, I got an exoterra and I was like, oh, shoot, I got to shell out for a PVC cage. And then I got a PVC cage and I was having bad sheds. So we moved him into a tub, but it was so much of, Having already started the research so far in advance of me getting the animal, I had the connections to talk to people, to ask the questions that like were stupid questions that I thought, but everyone's gone through the same thing at the beginning. Yeah, I think uh, everyone has the same basic questions. And with, with green trees, I feel like there is no basic answer. And there's also yeah. keepers who like to do it different ways. So I think, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if there is a better way than to, you know, try to get under a breeder's wing per se. Uh, if you're mm -hmm. serious about that animal, I think, I think it's also yeah. good that you, you didn't just like go and ask for advice and then never show up. You actually followed through, you picked a breeder and stayed with them and asked the questions and then bought the animal. Yeah. And I, I had, um, so I have like time hop and pictures show up that I posted however many years ago, and I had a picture show up on my Finsta. It was like something fun I did in high school. And it was a picture of when one of Ian's animals ended up being the one I bought. And it was like four months before I ever bought it. And it said, I want the snake so bad. And now I have it. <laughs> it's like the coolest thing to me. And it, I think the process of even getting the animal was so exciting. And now it makes every purchase of a new animal so exciting because I know how important building those relationships are and maintaining them after you already have the animal. Yeah, I think it's it really says a lot. Well, first of all, be to like be brave enough just to reach out and not mind, you know, talking to people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that, that can be a little a little weird, definitely for sure. But and also going to Tinley, like you actually followed through on on going, you know, to yeah. the place <laughs> where everyone was going to be, and you knew, you know that you would actually be able to, to talk to all of us in person. It was, it was awesome. I brought my two young cousins with me to Tinley the first time I went, um, my 12-year-old cousin and my 10-year-old cousin, and my mom. 
because I was like chaperoned because um, in case I've made any bold purchases. Um, I figured was, she was just like, oh, you're going to hang out with all these weird snake guys. I should probably go just to see how weird this is and <laughs> she's allowed to continue this behavior. Yeah, that's definitely true because there has uh, there has been a moment where like my parents are like, do you know any women in the hobby? And I'm like, yeah, I do. Like they're they're there. Don't worry. They're, they're there, um, yeah. But it's a lot of it's it's a lot of me talking to thirty year old men on the internet, like you. <laughs> um, <laughs> although you're still in your twenties, so you're you're cool. Thirty is but, generous, though. Yeah, <laughs> just like depends. Um, but yeah, and I remember my first Tinley. Like when I told Ian, I was like, I want to buy a green tree. He invited me to go out to dinner with all the green tree people and I couldn't go because my mom wanted to bring us back to her brother's house, like up north of Chicago. And I was like, okay, like I'm going to make friends. Like we're going to figure this out. Like I will meet all of them eventually. And then, you know, and now it's people who are there that I talk to on a daily basis and we're friends outside of just the animals. Yeah. But that's like that, that extra level, right? When you're, you're out of the show and everything and everyone's there just for green trees. So like mm-hmm. getting in on something like that is, is super cool. Yeah. So and I was nearly 21 and I was like, I want to have a beer. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so did you end up, um, did you end up going to Tinley the next year as well? Yeah. So I went next year or last year. So in October, um, I was supposed to go up with a friend. So Cincinnati is like a six hour drive from Chicago and I have family there. So I was supposed to go with a friend who backed out the day before and I drove to Chicago by myself. I listened to a full audiobook on the way there because I was like tired of podcasts, no offense, but I listened to a lot. Um, and <laughs> I showed up to Tinley by myself and it was like that kind of weird thing where it's like, I do know people, but we're not friends we didn't come together that but um once I was back it was like nothing you know you see people you make friends I met um Michael Holly there from Hollywood Condros he I had bought a shirt from him that had his logo on it and I was like I'm gonna wear that to like show people that I'm, I know people here it's like a frat party like who do you know here um and so that was really great and so I went on Saturday and then Saturday night is when the green tree people get together and I went out to dinner with them. I met like Andy Middleton was there um, and he's become a good friend of mine. And, you know, it was it's it's that awkward beginning because it I think it is for a lot of people. It's like these are your Internet friends or your Facebook friends. And then you get in person and you're like, oh, OK, yeah, you're a real person. Great. Um, but it's, it's great. And then, you know, came back the next day and some of my other Cincinnati friends drove up for just Sunday um, so I saw them there and, you know, it's just, it's just such a fun thing to do. Even though I didn't actually buy anything, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to Chicago for the weekend. And my friend's like, what are you doing? And I was like, looking at snakes. And he's like, can't you do it at home? And I'm like, there's more of them, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's really the one chance you get all those, all those people together. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of stuck on the concept of the shirt because I think it is so crucial it's like yeah. such an identifier of who's in what group because <laughs> absolutely like, because you could you could kind of you could definitely judge people by what shirt they're wearing and where where they fall which sounds mm-hmm. terrible but it's but it's funny because you know I whenever I would go up or I would be vending with like Morelia Python radio shirt like mm-hmm. people would warm up to me quicker if you know the rare python guys and stuff like that they'd yeah. be like oh at least he he may know a little bit of something yeah and it's 
I don't remember who it was, but it was so funny because I showed up to the dinner with like the condo people and someone was like, Oh, like whose wife are you? And I was like, No, I, I keep these animals. <laughs> like so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they were like, Oh, who are you married to? Who are you dating? And I was like, F off. Like what? But yeah, like yeah, showing up in a condo shirt and being like, Yeah, just this is Michael Holly's. You might not know him, but he's got like some really cool lines, you know, green trees. You know, just like feeling very superior, even though I now have more ball pythons than green tree pythons. I try to keep that on the down low. Well, I think I think having green trees, you gotta at least act superior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think uh, Justin would agree. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, the the superior. Mm-hmm. Superior Morelia. So, as far as like uh, getting into Morelia and stuff like that, and being a female, I mean, how do you feel like getting into the hobby and being surrounded by all these dudes? Um, well, I'm studying technology in school, so it's not a new thing. Um, it's like I'm not uncomfortable in like a male-dominated environment. I put you reacted to my Instagram story, but like it is um a bit of a hindrance on dating. Uh, it's just <laughs> one of those things that like I was talking to someone last night, and my like Tinder bio used to be like, "At what point do you tell a guy you have three pet snakes?" And then it went up to four pet snakes, and then five, and then after six, I just stopped putting it there, and now it just says, "I hope you like animals." <laughs> <laughs> um you know I don't think there's I think it's it's awesome to come across other women in the hobby for sure too so like um I just started talking with Carly and it's because she commented on a snakes and stogies episode and I found out on Instagram and I was like hi I just really want to support women like how you doing (laughs) and now we chat like every day so you know it's not I think it's a very welcoming environment to women as well um in general, like I think there are certain spaces that are still a little bit more uppity, um, but I never had a problem. And I think I was lucky because I did come in making relationships and kind of like establishing my territory within the <laughs> hobby. And I think that the actually the rare Python, rare Python history in captivity is pretty women dominated. If you look at, say, like Tracy Parker, mm-hmm. you also look at... Um, uh, Kara from Blood Cell, right? Is that her company? Uh, does blood pythons, but one of the yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so yeah, and uh, you have April, who's in the chat right now. Yes, we haven't met, but I tried to follow you on Instagram earlier, and then my uh, phone went out. So hit me up, girl. Yeah, so like, there's a, there's a lot of really cool uh, females doing really really awesome things in rare pythons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's the funny thing too. It's um, so I have been volunteering at zoos and aquariums for the past like year. I unfortunately was actually interning at the Newport Aquarium in Cincinnati and my internship got cut short because of COVID. But the like zookeeping community is so incredibly female dominated versus the private keeping community. And the reason being um, is that historically before like, I think it was like the 80s or 90s. It was a really male-dominated field. And a large part of that was because of the idea of man conquering beast and that whole idea of like having animals in captivity and being in charge of them. And then the switch went more to 
um, the switch went more to like nurturing and caring for animals, which is traditionally like a female dominated role, like in the home or otherwise. Um, and so now zookeeping and keeping on a larger scale in a zoo or aquarium is so female dominated. And so I think having that background and being surrounded every week by some really badass women at both the zoo and the aquarium was really helpful. Um, and also like made me feel more confident in my keeping ability and that I have a place in the hobby. Wow. I, I did not know that. Yeah, it was really cool. I had that conversation with the head keeper from my department when we first started. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. And where do you see as far as uh, what you're doing now? I mean, how involved do you want to be? And do you want to um, like volunteering and stuff like that? Does that get in the way of private keeping? And how do you plan to balance that? Um, I think there's a place for both. If you're talking like, do I believe animals should be in captivity? Like, obviously, yes. Um, I think that I was having this conversation with a coworker today. So, um, like I volunteer with animals on the weekends and I largely work with mammals and birds. So it doesn't make me as tired of reptiles as I thought it would be. Um, but I do work with some reptiles at the zoo, but it is mostly mammals there. So it's like, I still get to come home to my own collection and be excited about it. And then I think it gives me like a large respect of where private hobbyists fall within the whole picture of animal education and animal keeping because I think part of it being and I know this has been touched on on your podcast and on uh, her pet of culture podcast too is we as keepers have a stigma against us in the world of people who have reptiles it's just the truth of the matter and we have a responsibility to our hobby and to the animals to show people how incredible they are. And I think that's why it's so important to highlight people who are really good keepers and who are in the hobby for the animals above everything else. You know, like starting my Instagram wasn't because I wanted to get clout or I wanted people to know who I was. It was because I wanted to connect with other people who had such a deep seated care for the animal above the idea of wanting to have something in captivity just because we can. Yeah. And I think that that is always kind of, uh, I don't know, it, it's hard because you see a lot of, a lot of people obviously turn this hobby into a business and they, mm. there's varying degrees that they do well, or maybe, you know, it burns you out and stuff like that. Um, mm. so would you ever, I mean, it seems like you wouldn't consider making this a business at least at a large scale. Um, I think I would like to breed in the future, but that's more because I'm fascinated by the process of it. And like, sorry, I live in a college campus. So there's cars honking outside. Um, I think it's more because like, I want to be a part of the life cycle of the animal. If that sounds weird. And I like the science behind like ball python morphs and pets and such. But personally for me, like I don't ever foresee myself becoming like a big breeder or, um, someone who owns like a pet shop or something, but I do have a respect for where they belong in the hobby. And I think even though there's controversy surrounding some of them, there is a lot of really good people there. And the foundation of it is always like care and just a complete and utter love for an animal that's often unloved. Absolutely. And I think that's a, the, the crossover between say professional keepers, uh, private keepers and, 
uh, it seems like we, you know, we need to elevate ourselves to a certain level in order to at least be able to contribute in a positive way to mm -hmm. what they're doing and at least gain some respect. And unfortunately, I don't know if, uh, I don't know. It seems like they are much more into things like uh, stimulants in their environment and enrichment in general and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So I think that there's probably a much bigger rift than there needs to be because of how we have kept in the past as a yeah. reptile hobby, you know, in the sterile conditions and stuff like that. And I think there's like a place for both. Like, absolutely. And I, like, personally, I was always like, I'm never going to have a snake rack. Like, that's not something I want to do. Um, and then I started meeting other people in the hobby and getting more animals. And to be honest, having a snake rack for ball pythons is easy. But I have a friend, um, Matt Burton. He's with uh, KMB Reptiles. He's in Cincinnati yeah, as well. He is in the chat. Yeah. Um, he's a really, really good friend of mine. And he was one of the first people I met who kept his animals in tubs. Um, but he will text me all the time and be like, yeah, I set up a, um, he does bioactive tubs for his hog noses and he does enrichment for his animals. Um, so in my tubs, I make sure to have fake plants. And every time I clean, I change where the water bowl is, or I change what plants are in their enclosure. It's like the little things that I can do. Like for myself, I've got ADD. So my fan and my bed are moved every other week. It's like, okay, I should provide that to my animals to be able to have something new to explore every day or something new to explore just like on a weekly basis. And do you mind, uh, let's pull it back to the green tree. So how did you, once you realized that you you had you know, this display enclosure that didn't work or the mm -hmm. X didn't work, PVC doesn't work. You're in a tub now. Um, mm -hmm. Did you try to, what did you try to do in that tub to begin with? Was it pretty simple? Um, so it's a simple setup. I still have it. I still have like his baby tub and then I got an adult tub. And to be honest, I'm lacking. I had to get, um, I had to get my tub cleaned and I had to take all the plants down. So now it's just a bare tub, but the plants are going back in. So I um, like to put fake, fake plants in there. Um, people don't recommend handling green trees, especially when they're young. And I agree with that, but I also will take my green trees outside if the weather is okay and allow them to come off their perch if they want. Um, but I have a little perch stand so I can kind of carry them to like my porch and like tickle them to wake them up if they're interested in coming off their perch. I never force them. Um, giving them the opportunity to have other climbing areas outside of their enclosure with that perch stand is something good. So um, letting them explore. And then I will mix up green trees. Generally, people really recommend using paper towels or puppy pads, which I agree with. But sometimes I'll put um, substrate down during different parts of the shed cycle, usually like a cocoa husk, especially for my male, because he is constantly exploring at night. And he's under his paper towels or the substrate all the time. And he hangs like on the lip of the tub and tries to like break his way out. And he hasn't yet. Thank God. Um, so it's just like little things like that that I can do to try to help them. I think there's definitely ways I can improve. And Ryan Dumas is a zookeeper from the Cincinnati Zoo. And he has rad reptiles in Cincinnati. And he has been recommending... Um, like ways to enrich with lighting or different 
ways of keeping how he does his green trees. And we talk, and I'm very grateful to have that connection as well with someone who is a private keeper and also a zookeeper and has that connection there. So um, I, my husbandry is not perfect. I'm doing my absolute best. Um, but I always think I can improve more, and I've got big plans for when I have my own space to do so. Yeah, that's awesome, and I bet it doesn't really take as many animals to keep you busy and happy when you're always kind of striving to do different things in your husbandry. Yeah, and things get changed up pretty often here, especially with my um, my. I have a king snake that we thought was a milk snake that came into the rescue I work with. And the one thing I've noticed is that he is the most active animal I have. So I switch up his substrate and his decorations at least once a week, like complete overhaul. Um, I mix different types of substrate. I put certain sections of just cocoa husk and the rest is aspen or the whole thing will be aspen and then have cocoa husk on top. Um, things like that because he seems to be the animal that gets the most out of it. Um, but then on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, I have a totally blind ball python. And so while I provide enrichment in her, his tub, I can't change a lot for him because I want to make sure that he can like establish his territory and like have his area that he knows. So I think it's a lot about knowing your animals too and like being able to make the change based on the animal you're working with. So how can you tell that your ball python's blind? So I got, so I purchased him. I put my first payment down on this ball python the first time he got fed because he is a line I want to work with. And he was a really slow starter. So I was talking with the, um, with the breeder every day and he was a really, really slow starter. And we thought he was just like not eating. So the breeder was awesome. Like I highly recommend working with him. He was a very transparent, it's um capital reptiles out of DC and he does um, pied ball pythons, specifically exanthic pied. So that's like the project I'd really like to work Is on. Is there a certain line of exanthic that you prefer? Um, his are VPI, which I really like. I think in the future, I would like to look at TSK, but ball pythons aren't really what I'm in love with, but I'm in love with the exanthic pied ball python. So it's kind of like once I get that, I feel like I'll move away from that a little bit. But so the breeder was great, and he was kind of keeping me up to date that he was a slow starter. We weren't really sure what was going on. Um, and he ended up saying that he would send me the mail I bought and an additional mail. So I got two snakes when I'd only purchased one, and he was like, this one's got something going on, so I want to make sure you have a positive experience. So if you want both, you can have them. And I said, yeah. And then when he came to us, it looked like he was going to shed. His eyes are really cloudy. And then he shed, and they stayed really cloudy. And now when you look at him, you can see his pupil, but it's entirely surrounded with cataracts. So I kind of let him be for a little bit, and then I started noticing that if I went in his tub, he had no reaction except to the movement of me opening his tub. And I can put my hand, like, that far from his face and he won't react but as soon as I touch his face that's when he recoils so we're under the assumption that he is completely blind um I'm actually really fortunate to have an exotic animal eye vet in Cincinnati which is so specific yeah yeah so he is going there next weekend and I just want to do a double check to make sure there's no fluid buildup or anything but 
There's no swelling. There hasn't been a change in what's going on with his eyes. It looks the same. Um, he eats fine. He's grown great. He's a little bit smaller than his brother, but I think that may have been because of his slow start without really knowing what was going on. Yeah, and so so now, I mean, it's basically just normal care? Just yeah. Normal python? Yeah, I um, he I, all my animals are in frozen thawed, which is great. And so the only thing different with him is that when I open his tub, I kind of like hit him in the face <laughs> with the rat a little bit. And I'm like, hey, like this is here. And then I lay it down in front of him. Um, and I recorded it one time and it took over 10 minutes for him to find the prey item. But he was hovering over it and like bumping his nose into it. So I think he just needs the confidence to actually get it. Um, but he he eats every time. He's in shed right now and he ate last night, which is great. So everything's the same with him except for just monitoring to make sure there's no change in the eyes and that it is truly just maybe a, a fluke. Yeah, I guess you're scared if, say, it's like a stuck eye cap and he keeps on shedding and keeps on building up eye caps or something. Yeah, and I check for eye caps with all my animals whenever they shed, and I, I always get them off with him. I think the biggest fear of mine would be like a pop eye um, or any sort of fluid retention that's happening inside the eye. But like I said, I can't see any change and there's no swelling. So that's not really a concern. So I spoke through it with um, the director of the rescue I work with. He was also a vet tech and has been working specifically with reptiles for 25 years. Um, and we're both under the assumption that it's probably just early onset cataracts and he's just going to be blind his whole life. So going to the vet is more for my sake and to make sure that I feel like I'm doing everything I can. Yeah, I guess it's important to get on the, the right foot and know what you're working with. If you, if you, and it seems like you really plan to keep this animal for the duration mm -hmm. of its life. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's another pet. It's fine. He's healthy and happy. So, yeah. I mean, is it easier to find things like a good exotic vet? I mean, just from obviously working with the rescue and being at, at the zoo and stuff like that. Yeah, especially the rescue um, because so I work with Arrowhead Reptile Rescue. Highly recommend everyone check it out. Um, I'm a big supporter of legitimate reptile rescues that are registered at the state 5013C nonprofit, like not your Craigslist rescue. Um, and I trust Damien, who's the director with like all my animals. Um, and he's got really great connections in the area and, um, having worked with them before I actually started getting my own animals, I was able to see what was going on and like, um, see how certain vets work with certain animals better and make those connections there too. Yeah. And now how have you, I mean, you've done that in the, in the reptile hobby as well. Mm -hmm. Can you talk just a little bit about like uh, what kind of social media? Because obviously you were kind of all over social media and in things like uh, live stream chats and stuff like that. So you need to, can you talk a little bit of, of getting started at least on the internet? Yeah. So I um, have my own Instagram account like personally. And I, when I started getting my snakes, I would post them and be like, look at this cool snake. And then the next picture is me at a sorority event. And I had all these people coming up to me being like, listen, I have to unfollow you. I'm terrified. And I was like, I don't really care about you. Um, but thanks for letting me know. Um, <laughs> so um, it so was a decision. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I wanted to 
when I thought about it in the future, I was like, okay, in the future, I perceive, I foresee myself potentially breeding. And from a business mindset, it's better to get your name out there early and start making those connections. So I made an Instagram account that was just for my pets. And it was like a pet Instagram account. I think it was called like Fang Spins and Fur. So I had a, it was dumb. Um, but it was mostly my family following me. And then I switched it to DeFalco Reptiles with the intention of growing my connections from a business perspective and then also a personal perspective because I did want to make friends, but I wanted to be associated with my name in the future. Yeah, I think I think some people are there's there's a group of people who see someone who makes a page early and stuff like that and is like Oh, what does this person think that they're a business and they haven't even bred snakes? But I, I see it more as that you're trying to, you know, establish yourself in the hobby as well as like you're not trying to be anyone that you're not. You're not like yeah. we're in business now. Go, you know, like you're yeah. you're posting what you're, you know, the animals you have and the animals you're growing up because if you're going to breed those animals. I mean, it's going to be nice to tell people, hey, go look at my Instagram two years ago mm-hmm. when I first got, you know, the mother and stuff like that. I think it it comes through in, in different ways. It's you just documenting kind of your your journey mm-hmm. through all of this. And it will come it will come in handy because it always comes in handy. You know, for me, I always bring up old pictures and stuff that I've posted. Yeah. And it's also really nice because I, I think I mean, I don't think I know is that a lot of pages on Instagram and such are built on stealing other people's photos and passing them off as your own. Um, obviously not like the reputable people in the hobby, but you find those like snakes daily page and it's like, that's my snake. And that's my picture that I see. I, I see people like my page and I'm like, Oh, that is my picture as your profile. Picture. Yeah, exactly. And so part I never of it, get mad at it, but it's just, it's funny. Yeah. It's funny. And it's, it's just, I was like, okay, if I'm going to be taking good quality pictures of my animals that I'm caring for and putting energy into, it's like, okay, like let's associate my name with it. Let's get a logo. Um, logo was also a friend of a friend who was like, yeah, I can make that cheap. And I was like, do it. Um, so made that. And it's a good way to like watermark my pictures and it's just, it's fun. Um, but then it is also being able to make the connections and listen to your podcast. And I think it, comes across a little bit more professional for me in a networking perspective for me to reach out to someone and be like, hi, I listened to this podcast and it'd be DeFalco Reptiles as opposed to Dominique DeFalco. And it's like pictures of me at parties and like hanging out with friends. Yeah. Yeah. And I get, I guess it kind of, uh, I mean, I have like a personal Instagram and a snake Instagram. Mm -hmm. Personal, I don't do anything on, but, but it's nice to kind of keep those separate so that we can, uh, I don't know. At least uh, snake people know that I want to talk snakes and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. no people aren't freaked out. Yeah. I don't really care if they're freaked out, then they're probably not my real friend anyway. But yeah, and it was a big part of it too. Like we talked, um, like I don't want to have to censor what I'm posting. Like if I want to post a video or a picture of one of my snakes eating, like ethically, you know, not something that's gonna put um a negative light on the hobby i don't want to have to put a huge disclaimer because my second cousin's nephew is going to be mad that i put that out there or like scarred and i'm like okay 
like if you're following my page and you're seeing what I'm posting, like this is the content I post. Yeah. And that also, I think talking about how that's viewed inside the hobby, like videos like that, I think it's interesting, especially as someone who is just seeing it. And I think you got educated quickly. So you didn't make like the common, you know, you, you know what's wrong or right in the hobby and they're all like yeah. kind of arbitrary rules and I'm not sure, you know, it all depends on what you want to accept and what you don't want to accept. But I mean, mm -hmm. like things like live feeding or stuff like that, like that's a typically a no-no, but that's what you would see typically a beginner, you know, put up. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> this is actually so funny. So like this is on social media, like talking to that is that my Instagram account has like 350 followers, which is great. I'm like I said, I'm not trying to do this for clout. Like these are people I talk to. Um, but for some reason, my story I posted last night making a joke about me being single because I'm heating up all these rats got over 800 views, <laughs> <laughs> which is not helping my case. Um, and I had a guy comment and he was like, what a horrific way to kill these animals. Are you a Nazi? And I said, do you think I'm killing these animals with a hairdryer? Like, they're already dead. I'm heating them up. And it's, and I think it is one of those things where it's the perspective, it's the perception we put out to other people. And like, I had to be cognizant of that in that moment to be like, hey, dude, like, these are frozen thawed. This is how I heat them up because my animals have heat pits to see where their food is and using it as, like, I probably could have been more diplomatic about it because I definitely was like, F you, this is what I'm doing. Like, don't disrespect me. Um, but I was tired. So looking back, I would be a little bit nicer. Um, but I, I think it's an important part of the hobby too, though. It It's just, it's the circle of life. And I think anyone you talk to has a good respect for the animals. And that goes down to the feeders too. Like I buy my feeders from someone local who I know how he keeps his feeders. I know what he's feeding them. And I know how he mainly euthanizes them. And that's something that's important to me. And not everyone can say that they do that. But I'm giving my animals and everything around my animals the best possible life I could. Um, and that includes when I had other geckos that I had like a large dubia colony. It's like I change their water just as frequently as I change the snakes. I give them fresh food daily. Um, because I think it is a reverence for the life that we're working with. Because end of the day, these are people who love animals above everything else. And that goes down to the cricket you're feeding your leopard gecko to the Bolin's python that everyone's looking at that they want. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's always kind of a red flag, right? When someone disrespects the animal that they're feeding the animal. Mm -hmm. to. And that's kind of just showing if you can't really respect all living things, you know, then maybe yeah. not, you're the, maybe not the most well-rounded animal person. And maybe, uh, maybe this isn't the best place for you. Yeah. And it's like, if I, if I have to feed live, which I don't like doing, I'm not, laughing as my snake eats a live animal like I'm trying to be respectful which I think is it's kind of funny to think about because we are in a hobby where that's part of it but no one blinks an eye to you feeding your dog food that's high in protein it's just the fact that you can see the whole prey item I think that makes people look at it as like a more cruel aspect but everything has to eat and I guarantee you that not everyone posting that like we're horrible people is a vegetarian or a vegan who's actively promoting against like animal cruelty. Yeah, absolutely. 
I think it's uh, it's definitely a lot more reasonable that we are unfortunately euthanizing mice for feeders, but I mean, what else are they going to eat? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot better than eating a chicken or a cow or something like that. So mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe, maybe look at yourself first before you just yeah, feed something. Exactly. But spoken like a true vegan. <laughs> vegans. Are you vegan, Dominique? No, I'm not. No. Oh, boo. Hex. I know you are, but I feel like you, you said that you don't want to be one of those vegan people. Yeah. I mean, I respect it, and I can understand why people do it. My little sister, is uh, she's vegetarian. She used to be vegan. Um, nothing against it. It's just not what I want to do right now. Maybe in the future when I have um, more money to support a vegan diet. Uh, you know, when we're out of school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a lot easier to get like a Wendy's four for four than like go get vegan sushi. So Oh, I had, I had some Taco Bell bean burritos yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's there's some pretty low standard uh vegan food. Sometimes I just go, you know, vegetarian. I'm not I'm not I'm not awfully picky. Sometimes I'll eat some eggs. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn you in. Right now. To the vegan police. They're scary. Ooh, no. <laughs> yeah but uh yeah i think it's important for us to do everything you know everything we can within our power or whatever we're comfortable with just to mm-hmm. to make sure that we have as little impact as possible and mm-hmm. and honestly snakes are pretty damn low impact as far as um i mean mice are bred in giant colonies and stuff mm-hmm. like that. obviously we heat up rooms and stuff which is terrible and yeah Well, I had, I mean, before we called, because the audio was so bad, I have my AC unit and my fan on because my ambient room temperature in my house is 85 degrees. Oh, yeah. And I can tell that you're up high. Like, it looks like you're in like a I'm in the attic of my house. And it's like, it's so funny because I go as long as I possibly can without turning the AC unit on. But it's once the green tree cages reach like 86 degrees without any of their heating units on, I'm like, okay, it's time for me to put my cooling unit on. <laughs> it's just not sustainable for me to live in this bedroom at 86 degrees during the summer. <laughs> yeah, I guess. And that's the one thing, right, is that you don't want to you don't want to get them too hot, those green trees. Yeah. Yeah. I keep a very close eye on them. I... Um, it's funny cause like the tub setup I have for my green tree probably costs $15 and then the heat panel and the herbstat and everything else I have in there is like $200. <laughs> um, so I use, uh, a herbstat and I also use Bavarium electronics for the different thermostats I use. And then I have a Bluetooth sensor in my green tree, uh, cages that um, alerts me to humidity and temperature fluctuations. And that was a recommendation from Ian. Um, because even though I've been doing this for two years and I feel like I've got like my, like I, I kind of got things going in the way I want, I still have problems with like stuck shed. And the biggest reason that being is um, Ohio winters are ridiculously dry. And so you come off that winter and the animal isn't as hydrated as you want it to be. So being able to have on my phone, like the last six months records of what the temperature and humidity fluctuations are is extremely helpful for me to monitor my animals and give them the best care. Yeah. And it's probably a much different approach than, I mean, even Ian can take down there in Florida compared to to you. 
yeah, it's tough. It's tough. You know, it's not, it's one of those things because it's, it seems so easy to be like, oh yeah, just make sure that they're hydrated. It's like, okay, but my female refuses to drink from a water bowl and she doesn't eat when in her shed cycle. And if I inject prey with water, she won't eat that. So it's like, okay, how am I supposed to make sure internal hydration is just as good as the humidity levels, which is something we talk about a lot in green trees. It's, you know, I've only ever seen my female drink water once. And it was like 10 o'clock at night and I looked over at her cage and she was drinking water. And as soon as I looked at her, she went right back up on her perch. And I was like, damn it, we were so close. (laughs) Um, But, you know, just being cognizant and I think with all my animals, but the green trees specifically because people do have a stigma and like, this is how you do it. Being able to be like, okay, this is how other people do it in other areas of the U.S. But me in Ohio, I have to spray my green trees. And a lot of people say don't. And they're like, don't spray your green trees. You're going to give them an RI. And it's like, okay, if I don't spray my green trees, they're not getting the water they need. And they're not getting the hydration they need. Because I keep, I pour water on the floor of their enclosures, like, twice a week and that still doesn't bump the humidity enough even though it's humid here now the winter had such an effect that's still something to be cognizant of yeah and that's one of those things that you see come in and out of favor all the time Mm -hmm. person does it this person doesn't yeah and uh, i guess it's really just what works for you ultimately if it's not an ultimate crime if you're not if you're not seeing any some like dire consequence of it Mm -hmm. and they're not soaking wet but a spritz every other day to make sure the humidity stays in that like 60 to 80 percent range with the time to let it drip back down and then go back up i don't think it's the end of the world yeah yeah and i think i think it's always interesting how we see uh, very successful pockets of the country uh, with trees and stuff like that yeah, Texas. Like, I don't. I think you have to sacrifice your firstborn to get a condor in Texas. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what I heard. I I'm willing to do it. I think they're, I think, think they're an official cult. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all the condor guys, maybe. I don't know. Um, yeah, and gals. They're pretty mm-hmm. suspect. You guys. You you. People. Yeah, peoples. Humans. <laughs> you green tree humans. Yeah. So what is it as far as um, green tree pythons? What do you see as your direction in the projects? Obviously, ball pythons, you got pies, but uh, what do you mm-hmm. got? Um, for green trees, I, I don't know. I think it's um, right now is I'm very lucky. So the I have a Bioc mystery um, from Ian, and that's a 2017 animal. So he's turning three, and it's definitely male, um, shed sperm plugs and we know for sure. Um, he has turned out much different than I expected. He's got some nice blues um, in him as well as a decent amount of white and yellow. He's got a lot of yellow, which is that Bioc blood, so it's not too surprising. Um, and then I have another one that I think is female, so I call her a her. But with green trees, it is so hard to sex um, because you have to probe them and I don't know anyone locally that I trust to probe my green trees at this point, even though they're of the age I could. Um, I'm just not in any rush. So I think she's female because of she never moves. She takes like three weeks to go to the bathroom and I always freak out. And then she um, just a lot of her behavior leans towards female. Um, 
And she is also a rather high yellow animal. So there is the potential in the future there of producing like some higher yellow um, animals, but neither of them are from designer lineage or anything really well known. But to me, you know, they're awesome animals. I love them. Um, but I think that it's really important for anyone breeding to make sure that we're breeding animals that are in demand and needed in the hobby. Um, like I'm of the opinion that not everyone should breed a pet store normal ball python to their pet store pastel. Um, people can debate that and I can see both sides to it, but I would like to breed my two green trees in the future, but that's really going to depend in the future if I think this is an animal that people are going to want to actually buy. Um, and it's worth the time and the pressure on the animals I have to do it. Hey, uh, so SoCal Chris says, Joe, I love the show, but after seeing the BLM shirt, I'm out. Sorry. So SoCal Chris, go fuck yourself. Yeah, bye. Uh, <laughs> have <funny>. a good time. <laughs> uh, but anyway, where were we? So, yeah. We're talking about respecting animals and respecting uh, you know, people, too. But Oh, does that know. extend to that? Or I, no? I, I don't know. Not reptiles. I just only, yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's a, uh, I'm not, I'm. That's why we have personal accounts, but I will continue to be vocal as I can because I think going off reptiles, but I think that if I have a platform and it's something I believe in, I will use it. And you don't have to follow me. You don't have to like me. I'm not asking everyone to. So There you go. And I feel the same way. Yeah. And I asked you if I could wear the shirt, so it's not like I was pulling a dick move on you. You cost me one SoCal Chris. What okay. a shame, honestly. God, I was really hoping he would show up too. Not very SoCal of you, Chris. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, so um, I'm talking about like breeding and, and captive born and bred because obviously you're talking about some animals should be or don't need to be bred. But it seems like green trees, it's almost like we want there to be captive born and bred because there's so many imports and maybe we can stop that market. But it doesn't seem like there's ever, you know. Yeah, and I, I think that's, yeah, and that is such an important distinction because I was lucky getting into green trees to have been given the guidance of looking towards a U.S. captive bred animal or a, an animal that if it was imported was done through the correct channels and like vetted and everything. Um, and I think, and that is something I thought about too, is that if I breed my green trees and then like not the craziest animals in the world. They're not their own line or whatever. Um, I would like to be able to offer them at a lower price to bring new people in the hobby um, comparable to that of an, an import. Um, obviously, I can't most likely go as low as a normal import, but you know, giving a giving the accessibility to the hobby is important to me as well. Um, yeah, and that's I thought about that, and it's hard because. In Cincinnati, there are breeders of green trees, but they're not very, uh, it's few and far between, or they're not very active right now. Um, so when you see animals at shows, it's not necessarily the best. And for example, I had a woman find me on a local Cincinnati group that she saw I had a green tree and she reached out to me and she had received an animal from a, a pet store. Um, it's a local pet store, so I thought, you know, like it would be okay, but 
when I got to her place, that it was she was so misinformed, and she's done a great job turning around this animal, but it had like three or four layers of stuck shed. I reached my hand in the enclosure, and my hand came out covered in mites. Um, this animal was like bitey and had huge rods in there for perches, and I was lucky because she was so open and so willing to be educated and to make the changes she needed to like she did a great job um but to be able to just take out that stress to the animal and to the people who are keeping them would be so so nice and so helpful for so many people so is that really i mean i think that that's really what makes a decent keeper that even if even if you are messing up, you I think you're willing to take the feedback and, and see mm -hmm. what you can do to improve in the future. Yeah, and I think that's, you, you know, you see it. Either people are like, yeah, I'm here to learn, or people are like, go F yourself. I don't care. Like, my ball python absolutely loves this 36-inch tall, 12-inch wide exoterra you have it in. You know, it's, it's um, and I think it's having the humility as a keeper to say, like, this is freaking me out or I messed this up. How do I fix it? And I think that's why I really appreciate a lot of the podcasts and um, specifically speaking to like THP is that Justin is someone I really look up to as a keeper and then also as a friend. Um, and he's so open with his F-ups, which is nice because I'm like, oh, I did that too. Cool. I'm not the only one whose green tree is like, tried to eat a paper towel awesome <laughs> oh my like, to do that too that, that, yeah that's it's like thing. it's just the dumbest animals i could possibly keep like part of me is like i really should have just gone the tiger route and got my own netflix show but you know i think I'm, i think i'll be that okay of guys on leashes working yeah. for you I, know. I mean i would be okay with three husbands i think i could handle that life just personally yeah yeah and they can clean all the snakes or i guess tigers yeah. in this case yeah and if anyone acts up, you know, just get a new one. <laughs> you put him in the meat grinder, feed him back to the tigers. You know, I just uh, can neither confirm nor deny that I would do that <laughs> if push came to shove. I think that's what's so dangerous about about these times. Is uh, I don't know if you saw, but they actually had on like court TV or something like that. They had they had Ben Rennick's um, the murder trial um, on TV. Um, really? See anything? I didn't watch. I didn't watch it, but and the headline was "Snake King Murder Try Murdered by Wife" or something like that. And I was like, yeah. "Oh my god, they're trying to do like a Tiger King spinoff type of thing." And that's yeah, ew. it's it feels so nasty because when you actually like know the people involved, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's kind of it's kind of different, but. Yeah, I definitely don't want to be cast as that. I think we can easily be placed in that box. And it's. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I got so many text messages after that show came out. Like, did you watch Tiger King? Like, of course. Yeah. yeah. Everyone has, except for Phil Wolf, who I'm still trying to get him to watch it. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, I watched that. And they're like, are you like that? And they're like, you've been to my house. Like, what? Like, no, why? But. And it crosses that line, and that's, like, the importance of showing ethical husbandry and good keeping and people who care about the animals versus at what point is it showmanship and pride that's taking over versus 
care for and respect for the animals. And I think and it's hard. Forever morphing too. Like the yeah. person who kind of wants a little attention in the beginning, then starts to get it, then really likes it, and then it overshadows. Or like there's plenty of different scenarios that, that plays out. Or maybe it's someone who just wants to build their business and that's their way mm -hmm. they do it. I don't know. And it's like at what point, like I just started a new job. And, you know, I'm trying to get a job. I'm applying to a bunch of places and I run the social media and I run the intake for a large animal rescue in Cincinnati, but it happens to be reptiles. Do I put that on my resume? Do I want people to know? Because a lot of times what will happen is people get my resume and they're like, oh, so you have all these like school qualifications and stuff. What's this? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I have reptiles and I like work with exotics is usually what I say and then like 8,000 questions come in and the assumptions come in and the whole thing is like I really like my coworkers, but tomorrow I'm going to um Jen and Eric Vogel's house um who keep venomous in Cincinnati and they invited me to come see their collection so I'm really excited to do that but my coworkers are like what are you doing this weekend I'm like oh I'm going to a friend's house you know, like not wanting to publicize it too much, but also understanding that these are the opportunities for us to educate people too. So when people ask me about my animals, I'm happy to tell you about them, but I'm not offering up the information without you first asking me. Yeah, that's one of those things. It's like, do you have energy to do this today? Um, yeah. That, this opens different questions. Yeah, and it's like when someone tells me, about the snake they killed it's like is today the day i fight that or are we just gonna finish up this meeting yes yes because some days you let that roll off or you like say something very subtle and other times you're like what the fuck man yeah and it depends on who it is and it's like okay and i read a really interesting um sorry i'm, I'm like a big feminist so once again if that puts people off of me don't follow me um, and a huge, I was reading about the history of why snakes are perceived as evil or perceived as bad, especially in Western culture. And a huge part of it goes back to um, in Eastern culture and a lot of tradition that aren't rooted in Christianity, it's snakes are seen as gods and they're often associated with powerful women. But then Christianity started taking over the world and evil is depicted as a snake. And so when people see snakes from a very young age, they're taught this rhetoric that snakes are inherently evil because it's associated with the Christian devil, which, okay, there's a lot of things we think about because of like the biblical impact that it has and understanding that me being from the area I am and the level of education of the people I'm speaking with, is it worth me bringing up? thousands of years of history of snakes being revered in other cultures and seen as very important and respected parts of the environment? Or is this someone who is going to the rattlesnake roundup on their weekends? You know? And I think it's important for me. So I do education programs um, at like high schools and like parks and stuff about these animals. It's important for me to understand my audience always and I don't have a problem talking about this with you, Joe, but if I was talking to like a group of first graders, I'm not going to tell them their parents were wrong about the Bible, you know? See, that's why I wouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, you have to, I, 
it's it's so fun to do education we further programs. divide our our audience here we're like all the christians too yeah it's like well i'm, I'm supposed to be catholic sorry mom because she's gonna listen to this um we're working through those things in college but it's funny though because like i said like i, I do education programs and i just like having to be so cognizant of your audience is just the most frustrating thing to do because I curse a lot. I'm pretty vocal. And I went to school one day and it was 8 a.m. And I was doing six presentations in one day, all 45 minutes long. The first one was to preschoolers and they started sobbing when I brought out the turtle. Hmm. Oh, did I go away? What? Oh, sorry. My, my monitor went uh, off. No, my monitor went off. Shit. Okay. No, but they started like sobbing when I brought out the turtle. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, so my, the woman who I was working with is like, do you know anything about Paw Patrol? And I was like, no. And she goes, here are the names. Sprinkle them through and tell her all of the animals are named after Paw Patrol. And it was great. They were totally fine after that. Like, totally awesome. But then, like, you know, you get to the high schoolers and... I literally was giving a presentation to a group of high schoolers and it was me getting certified as a presenter for this, for the rescue. And I got bit on the hand by a caiman while trying to tape its mouth. Oh no. <laughs> it's like, cool. Like I was lucky, just got the thumb. It was a dwarf caiman, but he latched on. And I'm probably on so many Snapchat stories, but it was like, okay, is this a, freak out i'm getting bit by a caiman i can't get him off or is this a this is a great example of bite force and how we can't get his mouth open <laughs> and i think that's you know it goes back to the social media thing and always being aware of our audience and i know that you've mentioned it on this podcast that this is more like your adult content reptile related um versus like port city pet um, so it's like, okay, if I want to post a cute picture of my crested gecko looking at my TV screen, that goes on my personal page. If I want to post a picture, a video of my green tree in a TikTok missing his food, that goes on my reptile page. Gotcha. So as far as um, doing, I mean, something like like having the caiman on your finger, that is yeah. a very... Um, <laughs> Well, first of all, you get a cool bite story. Everyone needs at least one yeah, cool bite I lost, story. I lost my fingernail and I was like... Shit. That's super, super, super painful. It was so painful. And like the best part about it is it was the week after I got back from study abroad and I had been herping in Peru actually the week before. What? And I was in Peru for six days and saw one snake. And if you want to talk about a disappointing trip... <laughs> I saw so many other things that were great, but I was like, I did like a four hour hike and it included like a two hour canoe to get there. We didn't see any snakes. And then I get back to the lodge and there's an Amazon tree boa sitting on the lodge. And I was like, okay, it can you count. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, gosh, <laughs> um, but so I got bit by this caiman. We finally got it off. And like our caiman is like the fourth animal we show out of like 10 and so I did the rest of the show with one hand behind my back because I, I didn't look at it. So I didn't know how bad the bite was. And the director who was working with me, like tapes it up behind my back. And then we go out to breakfast afterwards 
And then I was like, great. So I was in Peru and I have this infected bug bite uh, and I was on meds for malaria. And I was like, I don't think I have a problem. But now that I also have this caiman bite, like we're just going to get this all done. It's like, I walked into like a little clinic at Kroger and I was like, I have an animal bite. And they're like, is it a domestic or wild animal? And I was like, um, is an alligator because they don't know what a caiman is. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, that's a wild animal. And I was like, no, it's a domestic alligator. <laughs> and so they told me I couldn't get treatment there. So I had to go <laughs> to another like urgent care and it was so dumb. And luckily it wasn't COVID time because that would have been a liability. But, um, you know, everything was fine. We just wanted to get it like cleaned out, make sure it was fine. And it, it was great. But like the doctor is like, so you got bit by a mosquito where? And I was like, Peru. And they're like, and you got bit by an alligator. And I was like, oh, Mason, Ohio, <laughs> like two miles from here. Um, and, you know, I will totally admit that was 100% my fault. Like, I think it's important to own up to your bites where you fuck up because I hadn't taped his mouth shut and I was going to do it and he was faster than me. So, you know, my fault. But it's it's a great story. It really is. Especially because after that, they tried to put me on like antibiotics. But those were, <laughs> I was on um I was on meds for typhoid because I'd been in Peru and you can't be on uh, antibiotics and typhoid medication. So they were like, yeah, just wash it. And I was like, okay, sounds good. <laughs> oh, that's when you're supposed to just say, Hey, I was uh, nailing a picture up on the wall and accidentally put a nail through my, my finger. I, yeah, I just, I don't know. I guess I was like, I want to make sure it's cleaned properly. I don't know. I just, yeah. I was give me, give me the the animal antiseptic. Give me the mm-hmm. the caiman cleaner outer. I didn't. I didn't know. I was like, I just. And I also don't like to lie. It's like Catholic guilt. Yeah. Um, so I didn't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mom. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were probably freaked out when you said that you had an alligator bite. I mean, and it wasn't, I was like, it was a baby because, you know, yeah. it was probably like three feet long. So it really wasn't that big of a deal, but bites in the hand draw a lot of blood and there's a lot of blood, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to teach these kids. Luckily it was a veterinary tech school. So like, uh, so they it was like good. It wasn't like a third grade classroom or the boy scouts, which I do a lot of like shows for them. That would yeah, have been Boys may like that stuff, right? Yeah. See a little yeah. blood. That's Just a little fun. bit. Yeah, I haven't worked with the Cayman since though, because he's just getting bigger. Is that is that under your under your like? Uh, is that your choice? Well, he doesn't get. Um, we don't do like a lot of like interaction with him when he's not doing shows, and I haven't done a show frequently enough to have to use him, and I don't feel comfortable doing it unless someone else is there with me who has training with the Cayman. Because he's there's not a lot of damage he can do, but he can do more damage than the ball pythons. So it just hasn't been a situation where I've been able to. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, not it's not your typical show animal either, right? I mean, yeah, not so, typically the most tractable or handleable. Yeah, so we don't when we use them, we like tape their mouths in front of the audience, allow people to touch the animal, and then untape their mouth and put them back in their travel container. So a couple of years ago, Ohio enacted a lot of laws regarding um, uh, like exotic animals, one of which being crocodiles and um, alligators and all caiman except for dwarf caiman are no longer allowed 
as captives in the state of Ohio, except for zoos and aquariums. Um, and our rescue was working a lot with alligators and crocodiles at the time, mostly alligators. Um, but rescues are not exempt from that law, which is really hard because usually what we would do is use alligators and they are a little bit more docile. It's a little bit easier to do things with, but, um, we had to resort to getting a caiman because we can no longer take in the alligators to do the presentations with. And he, he's a, he's a good animal. Um, he's just like your typical caiman. Like he doesn't want anything to do with you. Yeah. So what other animals are you working with during those presentations? Um, we do usually starts with like box turtles, um, alligator snappers, usually ball pythons, corn snakes, a boa, a berm, caiman. We just lost our tegu, unfortunately. He passed away, um, but we're hopefully going to get another tegu. Um, but our rescue, so we adopt out animals. You can kind of get, uh, like, most of your starter animals you can get from Arrowhead, and we'll adopt them out. So all the animals that we use in presentations, except for the caiman, are animals that have been surrendered to us. So... We pick the ones that have like a good enough disposition and like rotate out some of them that are so they don't get overhandled and such. Um, so that's what I generally work with. And then at the rescue, what we have varies week to week. Um, a really cool thing we do is that I say we, I don't do any of this. I just get to watch them do the cool stuff is uh, turtle rehabilitation after they've been hit by cars or chewed on by dogs. Um, and Justin got some really gnarly pictures from me last week of a snapping turtle that had been hit by six cars Whoa. and had like a four inch car part lodged in her back. And it's like insane to see what these animals can live through because she literally was like just pissed off. Like she wasn't, she didn't, she's obviously in pain, but she wasn't lethargic. She was snapping at me. And I was like, listen, dude, like we're here to help. Um, and so a lot of things that will bring to the show are rehabilitated animals too, or the shells of rehabilitated turtles. So we can show them how the shells are reconstructed. And it's a really good education tool because um, a study went out a few years ago and I, I don't have the percentage amount, so I don't want to be incorrect, but there is a significant portion of dead reptiles found in the road where there are tire marks swerving towards the animal. And I think any portion higher than 0% is significant. So even if it's like a low amount. Um, so starting young with kids and being able to like teach them about native wildlife and show them how we can take care of animals after they've been hurt is good. And it keeps people from um, just hitting that turtle again or just driving past. So can you tell me a little bit of how they ended up reconstructing that turtle shell? Yeah, so um, I'm going to write an article for the Herpetoculture magazine about it, um, but how it works, and I'll have like pictures and I'll text them to you afterwards because it's pretty cool. But so sh her shell, the biggest thing that we look at when you get a, an animal injured, it's like, is it a shell injury or is there additional injuries? And luckily for her, um, it was largely shell injuries. So her shell was cracked and broken up in pieces, um, but mostly intact um, and she didn't appear to be like uh, losing blood out of her cloaca there was no prolapse like those kinds of things that are common so what we do is you clean out the area we got the 
piece of the car that was lodged in her cleared out. Um, and then using like a chlorhexidine solution or other veterinary grade disinfectant to clean out the actual injury. And then from there, you treat it like wound care. So putting um, like what is like gauze and tape over it for a few days, regularly cleaning that, making sure that the um, that there's no infection developing. And then as the wound starts to heal, using uh, an epoxy resin mix with a wire mesh. And so then that mesh is put over where the shell would be um, and fastened with copper wire and um, eye hooks, like the hooks that you find on bras, um, and fastening them together. So eventually the shell will grow back, but this is like another, just to harden it um, as she's healing. And so she should be able to be released back into the wild in the next couple weeks. Wow. So is there any attention paid to like what color it ends up being or? No. (laughs) So there's like different ways it was done in the past. Um, Like they used to use one that was like yellow um, and you could see, you can, we can, we will get turtles in that we've treated in the past and you're like, damn, these are really dumb animals. Um, But (laughs) which is just like, why do we, why do we keep them? Like the dumbest things, like we could just get an intelligent, but that's beside the point. Um, I think we just want someone to talk to. Like I talk to my snakes. Um, too dumb to actually listen and talk back. Yeah. It just, they never argue. Um, yeah. But nice. so the color that we use, the gauze is white and stuff, but that's taken off. It's a clear mixture. Um, and then the wire mesh is what you see, but the shell will eventually like, grow back or grow enough to um, kind of camouflage it more. Um, you can see it more than the injuries on the bottom, uh, on their underside, because the copper wire is like that coppery color. But in general, like, it's it's not easy to see from a distance. They're not bright purple. You're not putting flames on it like a Guy Fieri car or anything? Like I mean, that? I could I could bring it up as an option. Just as not pink or cheetah print. Yeah, we'll bring that up. We'll, I'll, I'll discuss it. Although I don't Cheetah may really work. Want. Cheetah could work. We just might not want people to actually, uh, you know, go for it. Like, they'll put a target on their back. As I think, and I've seen people get them in as rescues, um, get in turtles as rescues that people have picked up and painted, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool. We used to, I don't think we do it anymore, but we used to mark them with some sort of paint. Because it's not really, it's it's not detrimental to them at all, but just so we know that we had picked that animal up prior. We do have a sulcata tortoise at the rescue. So the rescue works out of um, foster homes, and then our main location is our director's house. Um, and this tortoise is so destructive that it's broken down fences, and it's been found like a half mile from the house. So he now has a plaque on the back of his shell that says his name and the phone number to call. <laughs> Yeah, he's like 150 pounds. And we bring him to outdoor shows. Yeah, I think uh, kids are always always mesmerized by the, the large tortoises. Yeah. We put a little backpack on him so people can put money, like donations and stuff. How do you feel? Because it's like, I don't know. I, I always feel torn about this. Like um, trying, to, trying to get people in touch with the animals in a different way. And, and that way maybe, you know, anthropomorphizing in some fashion, you know, mm-hmm. putting back on it, putting clothes on it. It's, yeah. It's, I, I can understand how you take that negatively. In other ways, I see people interested in reptiles that typically wouldn't be interested in reptiles. Yeah. 
I think it um, it depends on the reptile. So every reptile is obviously there is a level of stress that they can handle. Um, and so I think that's why certain animals are seen better as like pet snakes. So when we go through and do shows like this, what we really focus on is we usually get a topic that people want to cover, like talk about good pet snakes or good pets or talk about the ecology and like natural habitats. Um, when I talk about good pets, I try not to anthropomorphize. I think that's like really important not to do. And I say that, but I also like, I call my snakes like sir or madam. I don't know why, but I just feel like I, I do. And it's not something I noticed until I started posting videos of me talking to my snakes. Cause you know, you like do things um, on your story and then you hear the vocals behind it and you're like, yeah, I didn't know I was talking to you. Um, so I think it's important to like talk about the distinction that these animals will never show you love in the way a cat or a dog will. Um, and that's not something you can change my mind on. I think there are certain animals that are more aware, um, such as large monitor lizards, or I think lizards seem to have more of like a capacity to understand situations rather than like a snake or a turtle. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with like the TikToks of like putting, like knitting a sweater for your snake and it's just a long tube to let them go through. I think there is a problem if you're forcing your bearded dragon on a leash and you're noticing like stress behaviors. Um, and I know they've talked about this on the Herpeticulture podcast a lot. It's the idea of um, a lot of times the showmanship is for us and it's for the pride of being like, oh, I'm the person with the big boa around my neck at the bar. It's like, I would never do that because I like, like we've talked about, it's like, this isn't for me. This is for the animals. Um, but the people who are like, oh, no, my snake loves going to the park with me and sitting on the beach and stuff. And it doesn't. Scientifically, it does not love that. Just because it's not exhibiting stress behaviors that you can see in the moment doesn't mean that it's enjoying this time or what you're doing to it. You're also in a situation that you don't necessarily have control over. So you could be yeah. at the beach all day and there's going to be mm -hmm. certain parts you know, that are over a hundred degrees or, you know, mm -hmm. right on the sand, I'm sure it's well over a hundred degrees in the shade. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, so many different things at play there that, I mean, it's just not smart. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we're really cognizant of with the rescue. It's like, if we're going to do an outdoor show, okay, we can bring our sulcata if it's above 80 degrees because he's fine. But if it's going to reach 95 degrees that day, it's not a great time to bring a crested gecko to a show or to bring like a, even a corn snake or something like that. Like being aware, um, because a part of it is, is logistically your animal is going to be in the back of the van. It's air conditioned, but you're going to be traveling to the location. And then they're going to be sitting at the location in their travel container. And then they're going to be exposed to a bunch of people. And then there's the pack up and drive back. Like it's, the, these are factors that are out of your control. And that's why when we do shows, we have a large staff with us. A show is usually not less than three people. Um, and we have discussions the day before and then day of of animals that we think are good for the show. And then it's ultimately up to the presenter. So like a lot of times that's me to make the final call. So I've been in the middle of shows before where I have turned to the people working with me and I'm like, we're not bringing out the tegu. 
or we're not bringing out the caiman because I'm judging the audience and their reaction to the animals beforehand to know how I feel most comfortable using these animals. And do you have any, obviously besides the caiman, do you have like a, a worst presentation moment or anything like that? Anything that maybe some people who do presentations can either uh, join in on your pain or try to avoid your mistake. It's like every time one poops on you, <laughs> like yeah, inevitably. Yeah, reaction? Typically kids, from them, and then what do you do? <laughs> kids love it. Kids eat it up. And that's like a great time for me to explain the cloaca, which is like a hobby of mine. It's just throwing the cloaca towards people. It's like, it does everything. Um I think, I don't know if there can be like a worse time um, because I, I thoroughly, absolutely love getting to educate people on these animals. Um, I think you have bad audiences. Like I, I was doing a presentation and, you know, you're presenting, I'm sweaty. I don't look great. I'm stressed because there's a bunch of kids and I really don't like kids. And my boss walked in. Cause like she happened to be at the area that I was giving a presentation and she starts taking pictures of me that are inevitably going in Slack. And I'm like, Holy hell, like this is the worst. Um, but this isn't, this isn't a presentation thing, but at the rescue, I also train new volunteers and I was training a 12 year old girl. And we usually don't let volunteers in under 14 unless their parents come to volunteer with them. And she never handled a snake before. And I explained to her how ball pythons are very docile and they're great snakes. And the snake latched out and bit my stomach through my shirt, full feed response, like right on my pudge, like latched on like no other. And I have to be like, okay, um, yeah, grab the Listerine, doesn't let go. Grab the bucket of water. So literally like pour a bucket of water on myself and it doesn't let go. So like it's like very just, unlike a ball python. That's it's totally that's unlike a ball python. But it's it's one of those things to be aware of when we work at a rescue. It's that we don't know the background of every animal that comes in. So we can make assumptions based off the two days that we have it, but you don't know. But like that kind of stuff. But as much as it sucks, I try to always turn the negative experiences into learning opportunities because you're going to get bit, you're going to get pooped on, you're going to have an animal get sick. And there's a first, everyone has a first time of those things happening. And I think like humanizing it and making sure that being aware that like not making people feel less than because that's something they're going through. Um, And so that's always my goal is like, okay, let's educate on this moment of what's happening and it sucks and you cry about it later or you get really upset about it later, but like not in the moment. And how do you how do you take that experience from doing like in-person presentations and does that kind of influence what you're trying to do on social media? Yeah, I always my social media is like pretty redundant with constantly trying to put educational material out there. Um, and I don't I don't hide behind my social media to like show that everything's okay um, when things with my animals aren't. For example, I had a foster animal come in and I foster some more difficult cases because I have some experience. And I fostered a leopard gecko that um, would not eat food. Like it wouldn't eat any bugs or anything for months. 
And so I posted a video of myself like in a tank top on Christmas Eve, sitting in my house alone, drip feeding this leopard gecko a liquid diet. And I was doing that every day for over a month and it sucked. But I posted that kind of stuff in pages I was in and people were like, oh my God, like I didn't know what I could do. My leopard gecko hasn't eaten. And it's like, okay, it's not, there are certain things that are our fault as keepers but we have to take ownership of it and make the changes that are necessary. And I don't try to like hide things on my social media and I don't, I don't advertise when my like animal has stuck shed, but usually I will try to make a comment. Like um, for example, with one of my green trees, she had a really bad stuck shed a few weeks ago and she had to be soaked. And I hate having to soak my green trees because it just seems like they really don't enjoy it. Very awkward. Yeah. Yeah, It's like hard to do. Yeah. And so my next post was a really pretty picture of her, but then the entire caption was about how bad her last shed was and what I did to make it better. And so the people who want to know about what's going on with my animals are generally the people reading my captions, the people just there for the pictures, like, pictures there for you you know and you can learn more about it if you want but i give the opportunity for both yeah yeah i think that's it gets hard over time trying to uh sometimes you write like such a a caption that you're you're proud of but it just doesn't hit like you ever thought it would like like if you, you can sometimes try too much to be like too educational and then i'm like oh i gotta be like entertaining and then it's hard to it's so hard to know um, obviously things like this show tend to go towards like the more people who are more into the hobby, but like, mm-hmm. how, how do we make it just as digestible and entertaining, you know, for beginners and stuff like that? So, yeah. And, and that's why I pick and choose what goes on my personal social media. Like I still do post my animals on my personal social media and I have people ask a lot of questions and I am like happy to educate people. But I think, um, I don't know. I think about it this way, and maybe this is wrong of me, but as I mentioned before, it's like the comparison between owning exotics and owning like reptiles and a lot of snakes to owning guns. And it's like people are this way or that way about it. They either love them or they hate them. There's some people in between that are trying to learn, but it's not my responsibility. Like, and I feel like it is irresponsible of me to force my animals on people who I can understandably have a fear of them or have a misunderstanding. But if someone asks me a question, I will educate you about it. I will not hold back in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, so often we, we get met up against people who aren't going to receive that, that message and that's Mm -hmm. fine. Yeah. Pick your battles. Yeah. 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 So I think it's also interesting that, I mean, for, for so long, I've been catering towards different types of, of breeders and keepers, but I really have neglected uh, people who are just getting started and stuff like that. And I think probably the majority of, of people listening a lot of times are people looking for information that are just getting started. So um, are you coming up with ball pythons? I mean, when is your going to be your first breeding season? It will probably be 2022, I think. Um, I mean, I feel like I could try to do 2021, but I'm not in any rush. Um, I'm graduating college in December, if everything goes well. Um, So I would like to wait until I'm a little bit more settled, like in after college life to get that started, um, both for the stress of me and the animals. 
Um, my friend Matt, who is in the chat with KMB Reptiles, so he has um, a double het uh, pied and VPI exanthic female for my male when the time comes. And then I have two, a female pied and then a female het pied that I'm growing out. Um, but, you know, I'm just, I feed like these are pet animals. I never want to power feed. I try really hard to make sure that I'm not like bulking up my animals, um, which I think is really easy to do with ball pythons because you see people who feed like regularly every week. Um, all of my animals are fed on a semi-regular basis, but they don't know what day of the week it is. So like they don't always get fed on Thursday. Like sometimes they get fed the following Tuesday. Um, we just, you know, that's what happens in the wild. Um, but I think I will consider potentially adding adults to my collection in the next year, adult ball pythons. But it really just comes down to whether I'm ready to focus on that um, and if I find the right animal. Because for me, I'm breeding to make the animal I want to keep. I'm not breeding to sell the animals I have. And lightning pies are hella expensive. I know. They're so cool, though. <laughs> so like I oh God, I want one so bad and then I was like okay I'll just make one and it's like the longest art project I've ever done it takes yeah. five years yeah, but... yeah you're messing with recessives I mean that's that's kind of the fun of it though because you, mm -hmm. you have a goal that's far enough ahead to where mm -hmm. it'll keep you busy for a while and I think it's a I don't think I'll ever get tired of looking at a lightning pie you know and it's not something that in the next two years is going to come down three thousand dollars like you know, it'll still be a valuable enough project in the future. I mean, Xanthic and Pied are some of the oldest genetics that we have in ball pythons. And everyone was so busy making other stuff that, mm -hmm. I mean, there should be thousands and thousands of those things, but there's really not. I know. And Matt is like my ball python person. Like he, so he started volunteering at the rescue shortly after I did. And then we just became like friends outside of that. And he's got... He's got eggs in the incubator right now. Um, he's really working on his uh, his ball pythons. And he, like, will say phrases to me that's a string of genetics. And I'm like, yeah, can you send me a picture? Because I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you can tell me, no matter how many times you explain to me what a desert ghost exanthic is, it's like, okay, it's also yellow belly? No, that's the other one? Okay, gotcha. Like, thanks. Um, so I think it's it's fun, too, to have a project that isn't happening right now because I'm still really learning and still making those connections and continuing to figure out what's best for me and my animals. Yeah. Did you make it a point in any way to, I mean, did you want your animals to start as babies? Did you care? I mean, when you were first getting into it as, and starting your project? Um, it was a money thing, to be honest, you know, financially, it's a lot easier to buy babies. Um, and then I, I do put a decent amount of research into the breeders I'm working with and looking into the research. Um, and I had been following the guy who I bought my two males from, including the one who's blind. And then we also bought the double head from him too, um, the female. And I had been following him for a while and he posted the clutch the day it hatched. And I messaged him that day. And, um, ended up like putting our first payment down like a few weeks later. Um, so we knew it was like kind of a long haul project, but it's a, it's a fun thing to do. It's like, end of the day, this is a hobby. Um, I don't think it's a hobby I'll be tired of in the next five years. So um, 
it's fun to have a goal like that and to have something. I think there's also a pride of raising the animal up for when it was young and seeing the animal that came in at 100 grams two months ago is now like pushing 300. And you're like, yeah, I did that. Like, I don't know, just fun. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a, having done it both ways, I think you get more satisfaction from raising that baby for three years, mm-hmm. you know, and then breeding it. And then eventually even, you know, you get to bring the offspring back and mm-hmm. get visuals and stuff like that. And that is just, uh, yeah, it's exciting because mm-hmm. you don't post it so far away. And also, you know, that you did it really from, I guess I would call it a soup to nuts. So that was yeah, almost like from the ground up. Oh, one snap. might say. I wasn't going to go mm-hmm. there. So, Talking of from the ground up, you are in arboreal pythons, mm-hmm. pythons, um, but you also have some other arboreal stuff going on. I know you have a crusty gecko. Yeah, I got my little crusty. I just like, I absolutely love lizards. I do. Um, I don't like bearded dragons, which like I get crucified for. Um, I don't know what it is. I just think they like freak me out. Um, is it like a feel thing or is it the actual, cause they are so like rough. I could understand that. They just like, I just think they're a frustrating animal. Like <laughs> just, why do you require so much work? And maybe that's just me being spoiled by animals that only poop once a week. Like, but like I feed you every day, like even with the crested gecko, like it's great. Like bugs once a week, fine. But like to have, I don't, I don't make my sal- myself a salad every day. I don't want to make my lizard a salad every day. You know, um, but I've yeah, had, I've had, like, it is excellent. I mean, yeah, it's so easy. It's the best. And I've, I've had bearded dragons before and it was, um, I got one in college and I live with my little sister and I like absolutely love her. And we were like mentioning this before the podcast started is I'm very lucky to have roommates who are supportive of my hobby. I wasn't for a while. I had some people who were like very against it and my animals were kept at my parents' house, which was tough. Um, my little sister was like, yeah, like, let's get a foster bearded dragon and we can keep it in the living room. And I was like, okay, are you going to help me take care of it? Because I already have all the pets upstairs. She's like, absolutely. And then we get it. And she tells me that she doesn't want to touch the bugs. And I'm like, that's what? <laughs> you can't tell me that. So, you know, um, yeah, just beardies aren't my thing. But I love crested geckos. I always have. I just think they're the cutest things. They're like the dumbest looking creatures in the world. Um, and I love that it's an animal that is very, it's very resilient, which is fun. I like having a room temperature animal. That's always convenient for me. Um, and I would really like in the future to work towards doing bioactive enclosures for some of my animals. Um, not all of them, because I don't think all the species I keep thrive in bioactive. But a crested gecko is a really great place to start. Um, and it was an animal that someone was getting rid of and they didn't want and it had everything it needed. So it was just kind of, yeah, let's just add a crested to the mix. And I didn't have to pay for her or anything. And I just got the crested gecko diet and I was like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's, I mean, honestly, one of the easiest pets you could ever. Imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't know about them before I got my leopard gecko that just like died on me. Because this one doesn't even need heat. <laughs> well, that was, they really just became so big in the hobby not not too long ago. I mean, yeah. the late 90s is when I believe they were rediscovered and brought over here. And, yeah. Um, they really weren't like your pet store animals until mm-hmm. you know, pretty recently. They're funny, though. Like, he is the only animal that 
I have a hard time cleaning because I can never get him in a, all of my animals have their own tubs to go into while I'm cleaning. Um, the green trees have tubs that have, uh, they either have tubs that have perches in them or they have the perch stand, but the crested gecko will not go in her tub. So I always have him like climbing all over my back while I'm cleaning. And then you like feel him up at your shoulder and you grab him and like put him back on your hands and he can climb back up. So to clean as fast as we can, but that's why I want to go bioactive because I'm tired. Always, of they always go behind your back. Yeah, and I'm, and I have a lot of hair, and he's like right up in there. It's just frustrating. Yeah, they're they're a lot harder to manipulate than a snake. It's easy for me to take a snake, put it in a different bin, go about my business. With the gecko, it's like you're stuck to my finger. What is yeah, going and on? he still has a tail, and I want to keep it as long as I can. Yeah, and that's like an added level of pressure. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I have, I have six with with perfect tails, and I'm like, yeah. I know I'm going to lose this one day. Yeah, you're going to jinx yourself. You're going to call me tomorrow and be like, I have five with perfect tails. But I don't know. I thought about, like, you know, I'm a little nervous vacuuming. I, I was going to jump rope in my room <laughs> randomly, which is, I guess, what I do during mm-hmm. quarantine. But I was like, no. Nah. We've all got weird hobbies during quarantine. Mine is plants. I, like, acquired eight plants. I got this little one that's here. An easy, uh, that's an easy crossover. Yeah, like this one. This is a rattlesnake plant. Sorry, this is an audio podcast, but it's – look it up. Um, yeah, but – yeah, and um, I saw Justin ask when I was going to get dart frogs. Um, when I do a bioactive enclosure that I can put my green tree and my dart frogs together – no, don't uh, do that. Uh. No, <laughs> no I, I would love to get dart frogs. Um, I think when I'm more settled in – Wherever I am post grad, I want to work on having more display cases, the cages, and that being like more natural looking cages for my green trees, like PVC with um, manzanita like branches or something similar. But right now, um, with college, you kind of have to move like every other year. You're finding a new house or apartment, um, so it's not the most practical of me to continue acquiring animals. So I'm kind of at a a standstill right now. Yeah. I think this is, it's always, and I guess that's probably why the hobby skews uh, a little bit older, but I feel like we're seeing more and more people, I guess, probably from YouTube becoming more and more of a thing, younger people Mm -hmm. getting into it. And honestly, from, you know, I started keeping on a serious level probably when I was 21 it's like it's like the worst time to to get i don't have anything together like i don't i've i've had times like and it's like funny but i know i've sent justin a video on instagram of me coming home from a bar and i was sobbing because my green tree had a perfect shed and i was like i'm just like so happy (laughs) and it's like i'm not like what am i doing in my life to be able to be like yeah i'm going to frat party now and then i gotta go feed my snakes sorry and then people are like, how many do you have? And I'm like, enough. That's a rude question. <laughs> and then there's always like my my place was pretty much filled with snakes and like we'd have a party or something. Like once mm-hmm. and I didn't usually have parties at my place because I was like, I don't want to I don't want music to be loud for the snakes or anything. But the yeah. one time it is all of a sudden there's like 20 people with snakes out in the apartment and you're like oh god yeah mine are all in my room which is nice but we did when we had um our bearded dragon's name was lizzo and when we had lizzo we had a party and like we had to have like 
three people like pick up her whole enclosure and move it into the first floor bedroom and we were like like everyone was going in to check on her and be like are you okay like we had her lights off and had like a towel over her to make sure like she was fine she's a bearded dragon they're fine but yeah it's just it's funny to be at a stage in life and it's it's a conversation I have with my parents a lot um is that this is a hobby that is a lifetime commitment because I'm 21 now or 22 now and some of my animals can live 30 years and it's like when I got my first ball python I am thinking 30 years into the future of still having this animal um which I think is a weird way for people my age and like how old you were when you started to like think about things you're gonna be a different human in like two years and I probably will too let alone 30 like what are we gonna do 30 years yeah Right. That's it's it's overwhelming. But I think that as long as you make it a priority to have your animals and I think that, mm-hmm. you know, I see it with dogs all the time. And obviously I've had Dixie since my sophomore year of high school or high school, college. Um, so I like, how her. old are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <was> secretly 18. <laughs> So I've had I've had her this whole time and it's like some people are like, oh, I'm moving, can't find a place for the dog, have to rehome it on Craigslist. Like, no, man, no matter what, you find a place for you and your dog. You got to start earlier. You got to work harder. You got to be more mischievous. I don't know. Whatever you got to do to keep your animals. And it's it's one of those things, too. And I go ahead. Sorry. No, I I was done. I think it's it's one of those things too that I think I have a different view on as well working with a rescue because um, daily I get emails. We got these two little turtles in Florida on vacation 10 years ago. We don't want them. And, I'm, and legally in the state of Ohio, you we can't take in invasive uh, turtles, including yellow belly sliders and red-eared sliders if we also help native wildlife. So I turn away yellow belly sliders and red-eared sliders every day. Or you get, like, the one that always kills me is, I got my kid this snake, and I was going to college, and I don't want it. Mm-hmm. Did you, you, like, you have to, this is a commitment, and I think a lot of people disregard um, our animals because of the lack of anthropomorphizing we do and the lack of affection they give off. Um, I always explain it. It's like I have a really nice fish tank and I put a lot of money into the fish and I don't touch them. Like you're not playing with your pet fish. And I think people don't have that understanding of the difference between like, like you have to get an animal with the intention to care for it for its whole life. And that goes back to us talking about being good keepers. And that's something, if I'm going to bring in a baby animal, this is their home for the rest of their life. And I have to make my home open to them. And obviously trading and selling goes on in the business. But at the end of the day, like I was thinking, I'm thinking about this way is I got this, I have this blind snake and this is going to be my snake for the next 30 years. And I said, yeah, I'll take it because I wanted the animal and I want to care for it. Um, And it's upsetting to see people who so quickly will be like, oh, I got, like, we got a message. I got a beardy, but he bites. I don't want it. You have an animal with a mouth, and that happens, you know? 
If you had a dog that bit, you would bring it to a behavioral specialist or you would work with it. If you have a beardy that bites, you you're, need to you're giving people it. a little bit too much credit there. I know. I, I hope. But, <laughs> you know, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people don't, people don't see it as a, as big of a part of, of their lives as we do. I mean, mm-hmm. we're just, you know, obviously taking it to the next level. So mm-hmm. they probably see us and hear us and think that we're just crazy. Like, why would you ever? Yeah. Uh, I mean, like we are a little bit, but not in the way they think. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, we just, we alter our lives and for these animals in order to keep these animals. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's, uh, there's something there's something nice about that. Uh, most yeah. of us are just trying to do what we love, right? Yeah. So, absolutely. And I'm so I'm so grateful for the friends I've made through this hobby. It's like incredible because I think especially starting at the age I am, um, you know, like 21 is like a hard time in life. Lots of changes happening, and to have friends that are so supportive and like get it because. A lot of times, you know, you have friends who aren't in the hobby and they're trying to be supportive, but it's different. It's different when you can be like text, like Joe, and you're like, hey, like, let's talk snakes for two hours. And literally all week I was like, hell yeah, we're going to talk. No one's going to judge me for what I say. And I don't have to dumb things down and how I'm talking about it. Um, It is just a really incredible community to be in. And I'm very grateful for it. Yeah, I think I think that's why, and I've said this so many times, is that you kind of you start for the animals and you stay for the people after a certain mm-hmm. time because uh, you know everyone gets burnt out eventually, and it's the mm-hmm. people who kind of notice that you're being uh, maybe you're making your distance, and then they're like, "Hey, come here," and they take you back and they get you back into it somehow. They just support mm-hmm. you uh, during because sometimes things go up, down, left, right. You know, you never know what's going to happen. So yeah. uh, those people are the people who really keep you going throughout. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a good way to put it. And how did you, how did you first, like, uh, who was the first person you met actually in person? Uh, was it at Tinley? I mean, who, how did you get involved locally? I mean, who did you meet locally first? Locally was the rescue. And... Um, I emailed them and they had like this really long application asking about my experience with reptiles. And I was like, I killed a leopard gecko. Like I, that's just all I've done. And that was 10 years ago. Um, and then I quickly became friends with the people I worked with because I showed up every day to work. I was like active on our Facebook and our group. Um, it was like, it's awesome because I just had my two year anniversary of volunteering there um, and then I'm going to the bachelorette party of the woman who runs the rescue, like in two weeks. And so she's like a great friend of mine. Um, and that was like a really good way to meet people. And so I think the people I met there that first day and it was terrifying and I was so nervous because everyone else had been volunteering or had been keeping snakes for so long and everyone was so welcoming and so accepting. And then from there, like, oh, well, if you met Damien, you have to meet Kevin. And then you should talk to Ashley or Cindy about this. And then Matt joined meeting Matt's friends and going from there. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, if you're lucky enough to live in a place with, whether it be like a herb society or a rescue mm-hmm. or something, yeah, that seems like a great way to, to meet people. 
Yeah. And we have a herb society that it's, they meet on Wednesday evenings and I've had a night class for the last two years, which is, uh, it sucks. But, um, I like emailed the board of directors and I was like, Hey, like I can't attend meetings, but I, my background is in, um, marketing and technology. And I was like, but I can totally redo the care sheets on our website. And so that's what I did. And just offering our services that way and staying involved that way. And then they like used me as a feature in their last um, like message out to all the members. And it's, it's great because you get like, I don't need recognition, but it's awesome to feel like a person in the hobby, not just someone with pet reptiles. Yeah. I think, I think cause that's the hardest thing is to, to actually crack, the case and get involved, like actually, you know, crack this thing open and get involved. Yeah. Because I know for me, you know, I was just listening to podcasts for years or just watching videos for years. Yeah. You know, I spent so much time just thinking about trying to get into this before I actually went and got out there. And it seems like uh, you progress so much further when you're just not being a puss like me and you actually. Go yeah. Out. And I, I think like, I think a great part about it is that when I got into the hobby, I didn't have any friends in the hobby. So I didn't have anything to lose. Like there was no, like, Joe, I was like, I'm never going to meet this guy in real life. So I'm going to send him a DM on Instagram and ask him about his green tree python. And, you know, and obviously that didn't happen. Like we, uh, we've, we've met in real life. Um, and so and I feel I like think- perception isn't exactly the same because I think we're all much more approachable than say, like you can go to the top and, and you can probably get an answer if you're persistent enough, yeah. like even if you go to like the top, top people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's, it's so much like, um, my Facebook has very much just turned into like LinkedIn for snakes, um, where I see a breeder like pop up on people you may know. And I'm like, Oh shoot. Like, James Opdahl, um, who's like incredible for his blue green tree pythons. And I sent him a message. And I was like, Hey, like you have no idea who I am, but I love green trees and I would really like to be connected. So 30 years down the line, when I have money, I can get one of the snakes, <laughs> you know? And, and I think it's, it's, it is such a welcoming hobby in most, um, most circles. And especially when you find your corner of the hobby um, and it's a lot easier when you pick an animal like a green tree where there's less people in it and the people who are in it know each other. Um, it's easier to get your foot in the door and make those friends and humanize the people a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, that is a good point. I think sometimes, uh, especially things like ball pythons, there's so many people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can feel like there's little subsects and sometimes it can seem like it's hard to be in the cool kids club. Yeah, I feel like chondros, if you are intelligent and willing to learn mm-hmm. um, and you don't hit the particular buttons that, that the chondro folks hate, mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, that's a good, solid group of people. Yeah, it so, is. And relatively, you know, accepting. Yeah, and I'm, I'm so grateful. And I think in any hobby, you'll find, like, bad apples. It's very on par with the current, you know, <laughs> environment. Um, but finding the people who you really can rely on and being able to be like, okay, this person said this to me, like, is that okay? And they're like, no, like, do you want me to beat them up? And I'm like, please don't, but thank you for the offer. Um, like, you know, especially being a woman in the hobby, like it brings some unwanted attention on occasion. Um, 
And so having those people like in your corner and being like, okay, cool. Like most of the people are good and I can ask them the questions and I can feel comfortable like to be able to be like drive to Chicago by myself as a 22 year old girl and stay the weekend with like a bunch of grown men that like, I don't necessarily know, but like have made the connections with these people to like have a lot of trust and have a lot of, um, like have a really good relationship and so much respect for each other because of the hobby. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, after a little bit, who's who and, who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that, and that becomes, becomes apparent and, and you see that people online are pretty similar to what they are in real, like there's a lot of really mm-hmm. solid people that are actually pretty decently large people in the hobby. So you can be like, yeah. oh, you know, Ian has a big following and stuff like that. I wouldn't be nervous going up to Ian and mm-hmm. he knows him and blah, blah, blah. And, yeah, so everyone yeah. is cool. Everyone who's who's a good dude is usually friends with other good dudes per se. And dudes yeah, and that, goes to everyone, and, by the way. Everyone yeah, and all people. <laughs> that's not and that's not gender specific. <laughs> You're gone, I'm just giving you shit. Um and it's there's no shame in like leveraging your network in that regard. And like for example, like Thomas Budway in that Condra world has incredible green tree pythons and I would love to have some of his animals one day um and Andy Middleton is really good friends with him and Andy like great guy had a rough time at um Tinley last year and I helped get him back to the hotel room and like make sure he's taken <laughs> care of um and Andy won me a ball python from Thomas Budway at the Southeast Carpet Fest um auction and it's like, Andy didn't have to do that. But Andy then was like, okay, and I'll make an introduction to you with Thomas. And I'm like, that is so kind. And it's a little thing, you know, like, but he didn't have to do that. But it's, it's someone that, you know, he's, he's helping other people in the hobby because at the end of the day, it's, we're focused on the snakes, but we're all here for the people too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, and, and then it gets even more fun. I think once you start, when you start producing animals and mm-hmm. then people are just always willing to give you animals for your animals. And yeah. Then... <laughs> I, I'm doing the thing. I, um, I, I build websites and I've been uh, reaching out to people and I'm like, Hey, listen, like I'll redo your website. If you give me, if we can work something out with an animal or a discount in the future. And, um, like uh, Michael Francis has recon arboreals. He does uh, custom perches. I made him a whole website. He's like, great. Like I'll trick out all your perches. And I'm like, awesome. Um, it just, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, especially if you have, if you have other skills, I always, I always tried to leverage that when I was first getting in, I was like, mm-hmm. can I do like some type of graphic design or editing or something like that in order to get snakes? I never really figured it out because uh, snake people don't necessarily care about their, their graphics or their websites. At least they didn't in yeah. uh, 2012. <laughs> I don't think they gave a fuck. Yeah. Uh, maybe now you might, you may have a better, a better shot. You know, if someone wanted to edit, you know, something for me, mm-hmm. I, I would very well, you know, be, be apt to trade them, you know, yeah. something then, or a project to get them started in it or something like that. I think there are different ways, um, especially for a young, a younger person who mm-hmm. may be in college and doesn't necessarily have money. Um, yeah. Over, if you're in Philly, come over and clean cages for me. I'll, yeah. And that's like, 
that's I'm tomorrow I'm going over to the vocals and I was like, Hey, I really want to see your collection. Um, let me help you clean tomorrow. And they're like, cool. So I'm going to go over tomorrow because I want to see all their snakes and they have other animals too. And I'm going to clean and then I'm going to come back to my house and have to clean my own snakes. But, you know, helping out and making these connections and, and realizing like people, people want to help the other people in the hobby. And if both parties can get something out of it, that's even better. Yeah, absolutely. And usually uh, we're easy to please as far as, uh, you know, I'm not that picky with my snakes. Everyone knows, everyone knows what I like. So usually if someone, that's also the nice thing about putting things out there, right? Is that um, if you happen to mention, oh, I'm looking for this and that, you'll have people reach out to you and say, hey, I've got yeah. that. Oh, you've got that. Yeah. You like see something on Craigslist or you see something on Morph Market and just like send it to everyone. You're like, Hey, you were looking for this. And you know, it's yeah, fun. yeah. Yeah. You can have a, a little network of, of people. And yeah. yeah, I always know, I always know what my friends are interested in, especially if it's something weird and, uh, and mm -hmm. off kiltered, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's goes. And, and I think that even getting into the project, if you wanted to get into something rare, you're going to have a much better shot if, if, you know, you have all these people and, mm -hmm. and you have the experience of it. Like my goal animal, I just want this as a pet is an Angolan Python. Absolutely love them. It's like a funky ball Python, but I just like love them. And, you know, and that's one of those things that like my friend Matt knows that and he's seen them available and he's sent it my way. And I, I haven't bought one yet. It's a goal animal, but you know, just, keeping an eye out for your friends is really fun in this hobby. And it's important because I think I get equally excited when my friends get new animals than when I get new animals. Cause I'm like, cool. Like I get to appreciate your animal and not clean up its shit. Nice. <laughs> like that's good for me. Yeah. I, I really appreciate someone, someone who really, really gets excited is, is Carly whenever she gets a new animal mm -hmm. seeing how happy she is to get an animal is like, Oh, like now I know what this is all about. Cause I don't necessarily, I don't get to buy animals that often. And when I mm -hmm. do, it's like, I don't know. I, I sometimes yeah. forget that excitement, you know, yeah. I want, I want to uh, make sure that I'm open to be like that as well. Still. Yeah. I just like, <laughs> Carly is just like so incredibly nice. She's so funny. I, I will send her a message and she's like, that's the most incredible thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And I was like, I just told you I had pizza for lunch. She's like, You're just incredible. And I'm like, thank you. Um, but yeah, I think like it's important to keep people around you who are in the hobby and that like, can help you out. But it's also important to keep the people, keep new people in the hobby who are excited and like still have that. And um, like when my snake shed for the first time I was like this is the most exciting thing ever in my entire life and everyone else is like yeah they, they do that all the time um <laughs> but and then also just in those moments where things are happening stepping back and having the appreciation and being like okay if this was happening two years ago how would I have reacted mm -hmm. you know and been so excited and that's like pumped tomorrow to go see the Vogels animals and it's like because they mostly have ball pythons and green trees but they also have um, like a lot of venomous. We said oh. Carly too many times that she she showed yeah, she up. She just appeared. Wow. <laughs> and she's she just talking shit. To you, of course. 
I know. I told you she's really nice. She doesn't have to be. I could be a real bitch and she just doesn't know it. Um, yeah, but I think keeping that wonder and excitement towards the animals is important. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something to where, um, we can learn from, from each other all the time. And I need to mm-hmm. relearn that all the time. And I think that what, at least what I feel like I'm missing in this period is like having any snake interactions. Cause like mm-hmm. I, I have the snakes at home and I'm, I'm honestly kind of like sludged down cause it's just a lot of work without any of the, mm-hmm. the fun social aspect and also like seeing other people's collections and going yeah. to shows and doing all that. Somehow that all stuff, that is like the gas in the engine uh, yeah. just being with my animals doesn't, it doesn't get me past like baseline anymore. Yeah. You know, and I it, need the whole thing. Yeah. And I think that's, that's been really hard with quarantine. And I think I've, you know, I think it's, it's really important, like on my soapbox really fast. Like we still have to be really careful with everything that's going on. Like reptile shows are opening back up, but it's important that we're all wearing our masks and helping out everyone else. Um, but that social aspect of it is, so much greater than I think a lot of people realize. Um, and I miss like even going to volunteer at the rescue because one of the best parts of it was every week, even though I get all the emails of the new animals coming into the rescue, I get gosh darn excited when I see them. <laughs> like, like I'm pumped. Like I always get made fun of because I'm like, we have another blue tongue. And they're like, yeah, you scheduled the appointment for it to get dropped off. I'm like, I know I just love them. Um, you know, and I think, I hope that coming out of this and regaining some semblance of like normal life, we can all have like a greater appreciation for our collections than everyone else's. Yeah, 100%. So guess what? We made it over two hours. Oh my God. Crazy. I was nervous. I was like, I don't think I'm interesting enough to talk that long. No, that is not, that is not true. You were a great guest and... Uh, yeah, we would have no problem going well over two hours. So uh, can you tell us a little bit of what you have planned for the immediate future and then kind of where we can uh, keep track of you and follow you? Yeah, um, immediate future is a lot more pictures of the same snakes, um, hopefully at different angles, which can all be found <laughs> um, all be found on my Instagram, which is DeFalco Reptiles. Um, I'm really looking to like make friends and meet people in the hobby, specifically female herpers and female keepers. Um, and, you know, like look out for me in two-ish years for some new animals, hopefully. Um, yeah, but then I just want to say thank you very much, Joe, for having me on. That meant a lot, and I was really excited to be able to do this. Yeah, yeah, of course. I, I It's cool seeing people that kind of like – stem from something that I started because I loved reptiles and wanted to get other people into it and you love reptiles and now look at where you are I I think it's just really cool to see uh that that can happen in just like a year or two and it doesn't have to take you know a bunch of money and a bunch of reptiles you can just get involved yeah it's it's been really awesome and I'm really excited to see where it continues to go Hell yeah. As for me, uh, check me out, portcitypet.com, portcitypet on Instagram, portcity. Yeah, you get it. You, you know, links are down there. So, uh, Dominique, thank you so much for hanging out. Thanks. And I'll catch everyone next week.